Ladies and gentlemen, very warm welcome to what I think is the makings of a, of a, a very stimulating hour and a half or so. Um, this evening's uh, panel marks an important stage in an ambitious project which the European Institute of the LSE has been very pleased to associate itself with. Um, an EU fit for purpose in a global age, as you see the title of uh, the debate tonight, which really captures what it's about. Uh, subtitle or alternative title, Policy Options for the Post-2009 EU. The project is a collaboration between um, the well-known and respected, very respected think tank policy network, the Eliamep Research Institute, that is, by its full name, the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy, and, as I say, the European Institute of the LSE. Now, so far, the exercise has brought together the ideas and analysis and proposals of um, some 40-odd experts from across the European Union, including not only academics and um, specialists from policy institutes, but also um, policymakers, um, policymakers as well. Now, the idea is that the conclusions and recommendations of the project will be presented to the President of the European Commission and the President of the European Parliament uh, and to the member state governments um, in about six to eight weeks' time before things wind down for the European Parliament elections. Uh, plans are also afoot for the publication of the individual papers which have been submitted to the project. Um, and those have been organized around three central themes, namely EU legitimacy, solidarity, and governance, EU socioeconomics, after or rather in the light of the current of the uh, economic crisis, the credit crunch, and EU leadership and security in the new world order. Now, the project which was launched uh, last spring is interdisciplinary, and I think importantly, it is genuinely cross-party. The only criterion for eligibility, apart from uh, obviously hopefully uh, being able to bring a few ideas to the table, uh, has been an interest that the participants should be, have an interest in strengthening the European Union rather than burying it. Now, with the current economic crisis and obviously all sorts of new pressures piling in on the EU's member states, not least the pressures of protectionism, or economic nationalism, as it's sometimes called, our task uh, has really taken on an urgency which uh, we could not really have anticipated when it was launched about nine months, the project was launched about nine months ago. Now, tonight's debate, which we are very pleased to hold in association with Financial Times Business, who, as you know, is the sponsor of the European Institute's public lectures, tonight's debate is an opportunity to discuss uh, some of the policy issues which the working group has been wrestling with for the last few months. And our panelists tonight including, include some of the politicians whom we are looking to to pick up, uh, to run with the challenges which we have identified. They include uh, the Dutch uh, Europe Minister, Franz Timmermans, uh, on our panel tonight. We're delighted to see, have him here. Uh, David Miliband, the uh, UK Foreign Secretary, who will be, we expect to arrive closer to 7 o'clock. Um, and Sir Stephen Wall, former EU advisor to Tony Blair and former UK permanent representative to the EU. But what I'd like to do first of all is to ask uh, Professor Lucas Soukalis, president of Eliamet, uh, 
to say a few words by way of scene setting and to tell you a little bit more about the project. Now, Professor Tsoukalis will be known to many uh, in this theatre as one of Europe's most distinguished EU scholars, having taught at the College of Europe, the European University Institute in Florence, and most prestigiously, uh, here at the LSE. <laughs> He has, also been, uh, he has also been a key figure in drafting the group's report, along with Roger Liddell, uh, Vice Chair of Policy Network and Visiting Fellow in the European Institute of the LSE, and Olaf Kramer, Director of, um, of Policy Network. So um, I, at this stage, I propose to hand over to Lucas, who's going to tell us a little bit more of how we've got to where we are and to where, where we might be going. Thank you, Maurice, for your very kind introduction. My role tonight is to present the main conclusions contained in the synthesis report that came out of this project entitled An EU Fit for Purpose in the Global Age, a project that brought together more than 30 contributors from all over Europe, prominent experts from the world of academia and policymaking, who were asked to identify important challenges and trade-offs in their respective area of expertise and also outline some of the policy options for the European Union in the years to come. Between the time that the project was conceived, which is a bit more than a year ago, and today, the world has changed pretty dramatically, and I'm sure you've all noticed. Uh, the global economic crisis marks, I believe, the end of an era, as defined in economic, political, and ideological terms. Some of the fundamentals have changed and others are in the process of changing as well. To start with, the globalization model that held sway for more than three decades, relying on the liberalization of financial markets as its spearhead, is in deep crisis, and this is to put it mildly. Gone is the rhetoric of deregulation and the small state. The state is back in many different ways. And national rescue plans of banks, the financial sector, and other lesser mortals, if uncoordinated, risk not only becoming a self-defeating exercise, but also risk undoing some of the global and regional ties that have been established over the years. Furthermore, growing social discontent is gradually translating itself into nationalism, and populism, an explosive mixture which can become extremely unpleasant or dangerous, at least in some of our member countries. And there is another change in the fundamental that precedes the crisis and continues. And this is that I believe we live in a world, in a rapidly changing world, but also in an increasingly multipolar world in which the relative weight of individual European countries has been steadily being reduced and will continue being reduced in the foreseeable future. In the search for new ways of reconciling capitalism and democracy at the national level, and also in the search of new ways of managing the global system, an important question that is ahead of us, I believe, is whether Europe will be seen as part of the solution rather than as part of the problem. And what is at stake on the internal front is the very survival 
of the euro and the European single market. We think that in the process we will be witnessing a readjustment of the European internal package deal. And that readjusting, readjusting package deal is likely to include stronger forms of governance of the Eurozone, a shift in the mix between regulation and liberalization of the European single market, although where we end up with the mix will very much depend on the internal balance, political balance of forces in Europe. Tax issues are likely to go up on the European agenda as the rhetoric of tax competition gradually fades away and there may be more substance in the European social dimension. And many of us hope that all those things will also be accompanied with a willingness for a more radical reform of the European budget. On the external front, in this rapidly changing world and an increasingly multipolar world, I believe that the key challenge for European countries will be whether they're able to identify collective interests and values that they can defend in the, in the world, in a world where size matters. And it is about defending common interests and values. It is about promoting global public goods, such as the environment. And it is also about trying to export a collective experience of managing interdependence in other words, exporting a kind of model for global governance. Of course, identifying common interests and values or the ability to defend common interests and values will in turn depend on whether commonality is perceived to prevail over diversity. And answers given in different policy areas will vary. In the project, we have worked on four specific policy areas, combining the old and the new. And the four policy areas include trade, financial services, energy, and climate. If you take energy, this is, I believe, a prime example of how Europe could make a real difference, combining the depth of a large internal market solidarity among its members, and strong negotiating power vis-a-vis -vis foreign suppliers. Unfortunately, energy is also a prime example of the remaining wide gap between ambition and delivery in Europe. Let me add, and I'll finish with those two, observations concerning ways and means of achieving those objectives. My first observation is, based on historical experience, is that intergovernmental cooperation, when not based or backed by budgetary instruments and appropriate institutional infrastructure, can only deliver so much, which may be enough only for those with very modest expectations. And the second observation relates to the legitimacy problem of the European Union. We believe that there is a legitimacy problem. And this is perhaps one way of seeing that legitimacy problem is in terms of talking about a wide gap between 
the ambitions and expectations of large parts of our national political and economic elites about the role of Europe internally as well as externally, and the sort of things that the wider European public is prepared to support, if not tolerate. This legitimacy problem is, of course, a problem that is unlikely to disappear from one day to the next. But I believe that in times of growing populism and possibly Eurobashing in the next months and years to come, there is a need for responsible national politicians to face this kind of populism head on, because if they do not do that, we risk gradually demolishing the construction that we have so painfully set up over the years. Thank you very much. Well, Lucas, thank you for that um, uh, very capable scene setting of what uh, we are about. Um, next, I'm going to ask Franz uh, Timmermans um, to uh, take the floor. Uh, as I said before, we're delighted to uh, welcome you back, France, to LSE. You have a very fond and very recent memories of a splendid uh, lecture and Q&A session you gave at the school last May, I think it was, last, uh, last spring. Uh, Mr. Timmermans has been Minister for European Affairs in the Netherlands uh, since um, February uh, 2007. And we look forward to what you're going to tell us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm delighted to be here and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share some thoughts on, on Europe uh, based on the, on the excellent report, Fit for Purpose. Um, one of the most pleasant surprises I had last week when reading the um, Financial Times, you don't get many pleasant surprises reading the Financial Times, don't you? but um, <laughs> one of the mo more pleasant surprises was um, um, Gideon Rackman's contribution last week when he wrote, who, who's been a staunch Eurosceptic, he's been a staunch Eurosceptic for a decade, and how he wrote, I haven't given up on my ideas about the Commission doing too much, I haven't given up on my ideas about the European Parliament, but this is not a time when we can afford to be Eurosceptics. Um, it's back to basics, it's back to why we need um, the European scale to tackle the issues we're facing right now, and I think that is something we, we need to think about. I think he's given us a, a, an excellent uh, opportunity to rethink our own way of addressing the issue of legitimacy. Because um, where in the report it says that le the legitimacy problem is um, overpromising and underperforming, if I, if I can, can, can say it in that way, I think overpromising is more of a a sign of a disease, of, of an unease with, with uh, Europe rather than the core of the problem. Why do people overpromise? Because they feel that they cannot convince their electorate that what they're doing is the right thing. So they start overpromising, underperforming, and then here we, we are overpromising again. Uh, but I think the core of the problem is rather that we have lost sight of the essential elements of European integration which is um, um, pooling, pooling of resources, pooling of destinies, which is more fundamental than pooling of resources, because the um, beginning of European integration is, of course, 
um, the willingness to avoid mistakes of the past and to avoid um, this uh, recurring incidents every 30 years of Europeans going at each other's throats. And how, what was the formula uh, used is that we link our destinies, we depend on each other. One cannot perform without the other. And this has performed admirably for 50 years, perhaps 60 years, and somehow at some stage, which was always the strength of Europe, has become in, in the public's eye Europe's liability. So why something, especially my country, why is something that was always seen as our strength, namely we're part of a bigger family, we're part of uh, a community where we pool our, our resources and our destinies, why has that suddenly become a cause of concern or even fear? Why is what we said previously, yes, it's good to do this, is now, why do I depend on these Romanians or Poles or French? Why can't we take care of our own and of ourselves? Interesting um, change of attitude, and I think this is at the core of our legitimacy problem. And my global answer would be, probably the reason for this is that with the end of the European divide, where we always assume that it's only changed Eastern Europe, it also changed the, the perspective in Western Europe of the whole of Europe and of our position in the world. European integration was always driven by the fear of ourselves and by the fear of external threats. Uh, communism was one of those external threats. We've taken away that threat, um, but we haven't found a new position in Europe. Um, uh, especially when the perspective of the newly European, free European states is no longer the same perspective as ours. We always had um, doubts about full um, uh, sovereignty of nation state. The nation state was always a um, cause of problems in Europe. So we needed to um, soften the position of nation states vis-a-vis -vis one another. Whereas for the newly independent countries in, in Eastern Europe, the nation state was a clear expression of their freedom. So I would, I would argue that the first thing we need to learn, all of us Europeans, to regain legitimacy is to get rid of this fallacy that says that Europe should be built at the expense of the nation state or that the nation state is in Europe's way. I believe that Europe cannot be built without strong nation states and that we cannot have strong nation states without strong Europe. And I think this crisis proves this point very, very clearly. Why do we need strong nation states? Because especially in, in the diverse Europe of today, um, our populations need political focal points and their political focal points are the nation states. That's where their political attention is addressed, that's where they want the answers to come from, and it's up to national politicians to define to the public that some of the answers or part of the answers can only come out of Europe, and not just out of the nation state. So the responsibility of national politicians is no longer to always say everything that went well is thanks to us, and everything that went wrong is Europe's fault. To be more honest about the division of labor and also more honest about the successes that have been gained uh, by, by Europe. So let's look at the nation state again. I think this is not something one needs to explain in the UK. It's more uh, a continental, continental issue. But I have, I have noticed in my own country, if you talk about the nation state in different terms, and if you take away the 
supposed rivalry between Europe and, and, and the nation state, you start uh, the debate on Europe on a different footing. Uh, and it, it does help you regain some of the legitimacy. Um, the second part of regaining legitimacy um, has everything to do with, with the uh, crisis we're facing now. Um, for many years now, Europe has been relatively un unpopular in, in my country. Very strange phenomenon that when Eurobarometer asks uh, people in Europe, do you support the idea of Europe, the highest response, yes response, is in the Netherlands. But this is an, on an abstract level. As soon as you go into the nitty-gritty or the precise answers, you, you will see that the Dutch have become quite Eurosceptical in general about the instruments of Europe, about the workings of Europe, etc. So what happens is that when talking about Europe, you immediately talk about the institutions, um, traveling from Brussels to Strasbourg and all sorts of other nonsense that we should have taken off the table a long time ago. So it's like when you're, when you're uh, going on a long hike and you want to reach a certain goal and you're not enjoying the scenery, you're not enjoying the fresh air because there's a pebble in your shoe and that pebble is hurting all the time and you can't concentrate on anything else but the pebble. That's what's been happening in the Netherlands. We've been concentrating on those relatively unimportant things that do not really matter but symbolize Europe today and we've lost sight of the bigger picture. We've lost sight of the fact um, that we should have been going to workers in factories and telling them your job depends on the European market. We should have been going to institutions and saying you can only act because there is a bigger European space within which you act, uh, which makes it possible for you to do something for our citizens. We have neglected that side of the debate completely, and I think our responsibility is to go back there. We have an opportunity now because um, what we see now is that people almost naturally understand that this crisis can only be faced if we work together, globally, but starting in Europe. This is something I don't really need to convince people about. As long as I don't immediately go then from that statement into a debate on the composition of the Commission or voting rights uh, in, in, in the Council, but I concentrate on things that really matter, such as how do we organize our economy, we do have a constituency for Europe in the Netherlands. Um, uh, an interesting thing that happened was that on, on TV, you know the euro has been very popular in the Netherlands uh, for many years, but on TV the finance minister was asked um, uh, uh, what do you think would have happened had we not had the euro in the last couple of months? He said, oh, we would have been Iceland. And six months ago, this would have been ridiculed by the press as a nonsensical argument that you could never prove, etc., etc. Now, Everybody saw this as a fact. So clearly there is a constituency for a European program if it is based on tackling um, our, our, economic, our economic problems. Um, I believe that if you look at the world, how it's changing, if you look our, at our economic challenges, financial challenges, energy challenges, uh, um, uh, environment challenges, Europe is best placed of all regions in the world to grasp the opportunity that is offered. Europe has more strategic depth than any other area in the world because of its population, because of its economic structure, because of its uh, uh, social retri uh, retribution systems, which are better than anywhere else in the world, because of its, its um, um, purchasing power. All these things are better in Europe 
than elsewhere in the world. But there's some things we need to do better than we're doing today. And this goes back to the third point of the report, our international responsibility. If we are able to provide stability and um, um, prospects for economic and social and cultural development in our own neighborhood, I'm talking about Eastern Europe and I'm talking about the Mediterranean. If Europe is able to provide that to that region, to our own neighborhood, then Europe will be the part of the world that will set the trend for uh, the new constructivist period that will begin within the next couple of years. We're going through a deep crisis, but I, I'm deeply convinced that at the outcome of this crisis, we will enter into a new constructivist period in the world economy where that region that is able to use its strategic depth uh, to the fullest uh, of its uh, capacity will come out the strongest. And why do I believe Europe uh, has the best opportunity? I told you about the um, strengths we have in our society, but there's also another factor that I think is important. I think economic models are changing. Proximity to markets becomes more important. Re-regionalization of our economy due to ecological factors, but also economic factors, financial factors, is, is increasing. That means that the markets with the highest purchasing power, with the best production facilities, with the, with the best possibilities to develop markets are best suited to um, uh, have a, a good starting position in this restructurist uh, period. The Asian economic model will, will come under pressure. Asia has huge potential, huge potential, but it will have to rethink its model which is based on hauling stuff all over the world three times around before you get it to, to your customer. That is not a sustainable economic model in the long run and Europe has a better proposition and I, I'm sure as they did before Asians will learn from what we will be doing. Finally, um, based on this idea that we should rethink our legitimacy, that we should be optimistic about our strategic depth, that we have a convincing argument for European integration, I think these three points should be where we start um, facing head-on populism in Europe. I do not believe in facing populism by talking about uh, moral issues, uh, um, saying that they are not part of the debate, that what they say is despicable, etc., etc. I don't believe in that. It doesn't work. It's been tried time and again in the Netherlands. The only effect of it is that they grow. We will have to tackle the issue by fighting fear head-on because my biggest problem in European politics today is that we have such a lack of self-confidence that the politics of fear have um, taken over the pol political debates all over Europe. You can win an election by playing on fear. This happens all over Europe. And the only way to tackle this is to reintroduce optimism on the basis of facts and not just on the basis of, of, of ideas. And I think there's a, there's a, a, a good uh, argument to be made here because I think we are in an excellent starting uh, position. Finally, what we see now in my generation, not talking about the youngest generation, what we see now in my generation, especially in the middle classes in most of Europe, is for the first time since the Second World War an intrinsic feeling of decline. It's for the first time since the Second World War that a majority of Europeans, middle classes, think it's all downhill from here. And if that happens,
people will be conservative, I hesitate to use that term here, uh, people will be reluctant to accept change, people will be reluctant to see the other or the neighbor or the other country as an opportunity, but will always see what is different and what is foreign as a threat. So here again, if we want to avoid falling into that ancient old European trap, we need to make sure that people know that, that it is not necessarily so that it's downhill from here. On the contrary, that we have a great opportunity to create a better future for our children. Thank you very much. Thank you for a, a very uh, forceful and, and, and trenchant uh, set, of, set of remarks. Um, uh, whilst we're still waiting for the Foreign Secretary, I believe he's about to arrive, but I propose we move on. Um, and uh, Stephen, are you happy to yep, sure. um, take the floor at this point? So Stephen Wall won't need an introduction to many people, certainly many students of the European Institute. Uh, he was EU advisor to Tony Blair, as I mentioned earlier. He was UK permanent representative to the European Union and um, head of the EU Secretariat of the UK Cabinet Office. Uh, he's also chairman of the Federal Trust um, and uh, chairman of the Governing Council of University College London up the road. Stephen. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I will be brief, not just because that's the job of the warm-up uh, man, but uh, uh, anyway, so that uh, there's more time for questions later. None of us can know, uh, obviously, what is going to happen out of this uh, crisis, but rather surprisingly, I find myself more optimistic than pessimistic uh, about the state of the uh, European Union, uh, not because uh, one looks at the present leadership and thinks uh, these are all great guys, but because it seems to me that actually the intrinsics of the situation are going to impel us in a direction of uh, greater uh, integration. I think it's a mistake to think that there was a kind of golden age uh, in which we, we, when I say we, perhaps apart from the British, all believed in integration and we were motoring uh, in that direction. It was never thus. De Gaulle took France out of the European institutions in the mid-1960s because he wanted to stop the progress towards integration with a powerful commission and more majority voting. He failed in that uh, attempt. The commitment of the European community in 1972 to transform their relationships into a political union by 1980, including economic and monetary union, founded uh, on the oil crisis of the 1970s. Uh, Britain came out of the exchange rate mechanism in 1992. The exchange rate mechanism as a whole almost collapsed uh, a year later. The single currency on the back of the Maastricht Treaty did not, has not yet turned into uh, the political Europe that its uh, designers intended it to be, and yet uh, here we are. It seems to me that on the back of an unprecedented period of prosperity, uh, maybe we did forget about uh, some of the basics. Maybe we were more focused on talking the talk uh, as per the constitutional treaty than we were on walking the walk. But some of the underlying realities seem to me to point back in the direction of integration. The biggest single treaty change we have ever made since the Treaty of Rome was the single uh, European Act, the single market uh, of the mid-1980s, where Margaret Thatcher, against her better judgment, accepted massive institutional change as the only way to achieve a uh, desirable practical result. I believe we saw something very similar in the Lisbon Treaty, and I hope it comes into force, on the whole question of our cooperation in the fight against terrorism, uh, international crime, etc., that effectively 26 countries have decided to abandon what was the purely governmental, intergovernmental model 
laid down originally under the Maastricht Treaty and to move that area of cooperation into the integrational model of the community, commission proposals, council, parliament decisions, adjudication of the European Court. And although the British government has opt-outs, it has those opt-outs by and large because it wants both to manage a domestic political difficulty but also to opt in. On energy, for years, the European policy was built around liberalization. That's what we fought for. We fought for liberalization of energy markets. We now see that that is necessary but not sufficient. The European policy now is moving towards proactive steps to build an integrated grid, gas, and electricity. I believe, if you look at the Commission's proposals, I believe we will end up with specific commitments on uh, solidarity. Some of us, uh, Ian Begg and I, were part of a Chatham House Commission, have recommended that actually there should be a common European external energy policy. In other words, that we should have the Commission negotiating on our behalf on external trade. That may not happen, but it's interesting to see that the Commission, in their most recent document, are themselves proposing wrapping up energy in some kind of free trade agreement negotiation with Russia that might achieve uh, more or less uh, the, same, uh, uh, the same purpose. On climate change, the only way we can tackle climate change, the only way we can implement the steps which we have taken a lead so far, at the risk now of being overtaken by the Obama administration, the lead which we in Europe have taken so far on climate change is by using the traditional methods of the community whereby on the back of a policy agreed by heads of government, decisions are actually taken uh, in the council by uh, majority vote. I think we will be forced, pushed inexorably. If you look at the De La Rosier report on regulation, it's a rather timid document, but the commission document on the back of it is already proposing to go uh, further. Uh, I hope David Miliband will tell us what the position of the British government is on more regulation at EU level, but it seems to me whatever the position of the British government, that is the way the present circumstances are going to uh, oblige us to go. And finally, on economic and monetary union, will this be the death of economic and monetary union? On, again, I think on the contrary, not because Europe's leaders want suddenly to embrace the political that they have so far eschewed, but it seems to me that for political and economic reasons, uh, the Eurozone cannot be and will not be allowed uh, to fail. And the fact is that if, for the first time, the Eurozone countries are compelled actually to make very large financial transfers from the richer to the poorer, something that they set their face against, back in 1991, then that will have big political consequences, I believe, in terms of the political management of the Eurozone. So I, I, on the back of that, I hope not foolishly, I am actually optimistic that the events we are in are going to compel us in the direction of more integration rather than the reverse. Well, Stephen, thank you for, um, not for the first time, um, coming and sharing um, your thoughts with us here at the school, uh, and they were as effectively delivered and interesting as ever, so thank you very much for that. Um, I think what we'll do now, still, um, with the Foreign Secretary still not, uh, yet, not yet arrived, but I believe about to do so, um, I'm going to ask Peter Sutherland, um, who is uh, Chair, as I'm sure you all know, of the LSE's Court of Governors, uh, to say a few words. Uh, Peter, would you like to come up? Or? Um, uh, to say a few words specifically about the Irish referendum because that is yet still the, the joker in the pack that could yet surprise us all and which must form at least part of the backdrop to our discussion uh, whether uh, the, uh, the uh, treaty which so much toil and tears have been expended um, uh, will actually be ratified in the country he knows rather well um, so we just 
just in time. Well, now I can be even. I can be even briefer than an Irishman normally is, rather than a filibuster. But I will. I'll give you. I'll give you a quick view on it. Um, I believe that the referendum will be won, and will be won comprehensively. And the reason why I believe that that is the case is that a number of things have changed. First of all, the initial campaign was ineptly handled politically. And it was also in the immediate aftermath of the resignation of a Taoiseach. And uh, a number of myths were perpetuated during the course of the campaign, which have now largely been removed. Secondly, there has been a change in the sense that each country is being allowed to retain a commissioner, which is of some importance. Thirdly, the economic condition, and this above all, has changed the entire atmosphere. Whatever about the comments in regard to the Netherlands and Iceland, the euro, and being part of the eurozone, is understood correctly to be an imperative of economic policy in Ireland today. So for all of those reasons, but most significantly because the most recent polls demonstrate that I'm correct, there is, a, there is, there is now, it appears, a significant majority in favour of the treaty. There was never such a majority leading up to the first referendum. I think that the extent of that majority is now considerable, and I believe that the political impetus with all political parties being in favour, and the Irish people as to 82%, being in favour of further in European integration, according to the most recent polls, that even by the standards of former referenda, it would be an act of uh, incredible, uh, incredibly difficult to understand if it were to go wrong this time, and it won't. Thank you. Well, Peter, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, I expect many people in this room will hope that um, this is not a case of the wish being father to the prophecy. Uh, we have a few months uh, to wait till we know the, for sure the answer to that uh, question. Now, it gives me great pleasure to welcome um, the Foreign Secretary uh, to this uh, panel uh, discussion. Uh, he certainly needs very little introduction. Um, and, of course, his associations uh, with this institution are not inconsiderable. Um, uh, um, David Miliband has been Secretary of State for Foreign and Common, uh, well, uh, Commonwealth Affairs uh, for a wee while now. He started off as a, uh, well, uh, originally as head of Tony Blair's policy unit uh, in Labour's first term of government from 1997 to 2001. He was elected Member of Parliament for South Shields uh, in, 2000, in 2001. Um, and uh, he's now going to set out um, some thoughts um, of his own on the kind of issues that we have been, that we are addressing in the project and in the draft report. Thank you. Thank you very much. You say thoughts of my own. I mean, this is far too important a topic for the Foreign Secretary to be allowed to say what he actually thinks. <laughs> uh, it's needless, uh, needless to say. Um, the, uh, I'm not sure which, whether I'm going to come at this from the same angle as some of the other... By the way, where's, where's Peter... If you're in the government at the moment, you certainly don't believe the polls. So uh, don't put all your faith in uh, don't put all your faith in opinion polls. But I'm interested in what you uh, in in what you said. Um, I, I want to talk about the tests that I think the European Union faces in the context of the global economic uh, crisis, because I, I think that there is a danger 
that despite, or maybe because of, the scale of the economic crisis, we underestimate the extent to which we have to look hard at our own systems and structures. And uh, I looked at the report last night, and I think it's got some very interesting and important uh, points in it. And I think it's in the context of the economic challenge that the countries of Europe and actually beyond face that uh, we should, uh, that, that I want to address my, um, uh, my remarks, and I'll, and I'll stay within the, 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 the 15 uh, minutes. I think that if you think about the successes of the European Union over the last uh, 30 or 40 years, two things have been at their heart. Uh, one is regulated markets, and secondly is cooperative politics. And those two facets of the European project not just a European project, but it's a project that has been developed in the European Union very strongly. Those are now under massive scrutiny as a result of the economic uh, crisis. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Europe's core values and institutions are therefore going to be tested by this economic crisis in ways that perhaps we haven't fully come to terms with. Uh, our belief, or the belief of those of us who have celebrated the successes of the European Union, is that the long-term gains of freedom of movement of people, uh, money, uh, products are overwhelming and that they should push to one side the short-term clamor for protectionism that comes and goes. That's a real debate now in the European Union. Uh, the leadership that the European Union has shown on climate change in the last few years. There are plenty of calls for uh, Europe to step back and to reconsider. Uh, the sense of solidarity that exists within the European Union or should be the heart of the European bargain uh, is leading, is actually under question. And people are asking whether or not we can prevent an Iron Curtain, a new Iron Curtain descending uh, on Europe. Now, the achievements of the last 30 years, uh, the uh, single market, uh, enlargement, the Euro, I consider them all to have been uh, achievements, are therefore being tested as never before. And I think what's important is that our Prime Minister has said this is a global crisis, which requires a global response. He said it's a crisis with local effects that require local and national action. But he's also said it is a crisis that requires action at the European level. Because the European level can interpose itself between the global and the uh, local. And I think he's absolutely right to argue this, and I think our task is to figure out in which ways the European Union can add value to a global response and to a local or national response. In essence, my argument is that the European Union should, will be, the, Europe, the, the economic crisis will be used by many people to argue that the EU should postpone reform. I think the opposite is the case, and I think we have to win the argument that the opposite is the case. We actually need new reforms in the European Union to preserve the gains of enlargement, single market, and the euro. The way to preserve those gains is actually to build on them by developing flexibility, resilience, and global reach that is essential in the modern uh, world. And I think there's a political part to this argument as well, because reform of the European Union, which involves by definition critique of the European Union, should be what pro-Europeans do. It shouldn't be left to anti-Europeans or skeptical Europeans to complain about different parts of the European system. 
reform of the way we regulate and supervise financial services, reform of how we use European budgets to promote low-carbon recovery, reform of labour markets to put the emphasis on skills and human capital, helping workers if they lose their jobs, reform of the energy system, an area where Britain is calling for a common energy uh, policy and uh, strategy, is vital to increase support for vulnerable uh, European countries, reform of the way we cooperate with neighbours to the south and neighbours uh, to the east. I think that now is the time for pro-Europeans to be putting the reform case as a way of preserving the gains as well as responding to the economic crisis. I think there are three areas that I just want to highlight uh, tonight. Um, not because I've got all the answers in these areas, but because I think they're important. They are the areas of economic uh, reform, they're the areas of energy, and they're the areas, thirdly, of what might be called neighbourhood policy. First, um, economic reform. I think that the, th the uh, or, yeah, economic reform. I think the three three ways in which European action can be seen as adding value. One is to bring the weight of coordinated macroeconomic action to meet macroeconomic need. And we can go into this in questions if necessary. But there have been successive uh, European summits uh, that have, I think gone some way towards doing this, notably in respect of the need for fiscal stimulus uh, around Europe. Uh, the second area is upholding and aligning national financial regulation and infrastructure across the European Union, all 27. And thirdly, using European budgets to promote the skills and the science of the future. Let me just say a word about those, the, the second and the third. First, on regulation. I don't know about you, but as I've read about the economic crisis, the biggest intellectual leap that we face is to focus on what you might call systemic risk rather than institutional risk. That regulation up to now has been focused on the level of the institution, but actually we've got a system collapse, and, or the danger of a system collapse. And it's the interplay between different factors that have to be monitored, not just the activities of a particular institution that's important. Market-wide systemic risk obviously does not stop at the borders of one country or even one continent at a time when you've got a global financial uh, system. And the potential for a spillover is huge as we're seeing. I think it's very important that uh, Alistair Darling has welcomed the De La Rosière report as an important contribution to the debate and a useful basis for further discussions on improving supervision and regulation in Europe. He's proposed a new independent European early warning body that brings together macroeconomic and financial market issues a single body to become the source of technical financial rules with a clear mandate to iron out national divergences and closer integration and consolidation of EU financial infrastructure. I think all of these are important uh, areas that European leaders are going to address at the Spring European Council the week uh, after, uh, at the end of next week. Beyond, though, addressing the current crisis, we also mustn't forget that we're in the ninth year of the Lisbon strategy. The Centre for European Reform have just published their ninth audit of progress on the Lisbon uh, strategy. And the financial bailouts and the uh, attendant uh, economic uh, challenges that we face make it easy to say this is a time to postpone supply-side reform. I actually think the opposite uh, is the case. We need more European world-class universities, more investment in R&D to compete on quality and innovation. We need in, some, in many countries to make labour markets more flexible because as the recovery begins, companies must be both able and willing to risk employing additional staff as they try to expand and grow. And I think that although it's not 
the stuff of headlines, the uh, Lisbon supply-side agenda remains very, very important. Second area I just want to say a word about is energy security. Uh, a year ago, I gave a lecture in this hall about climate change and talked about energy security as the flip side of it. And I just want to focus on the energy security side uh, at the moment. Because although we're in the midst of a financial crisis, I deliberately talked about putting my remarks in the context of an economic crisis. And the economic crisis has its origins in $147 a barrel oil as well as in problems of uh, systemic risk in financial markets. And I think that the transition to a low carbon economy, therefore, is not just an environmental issue, a climate change issue, it's also a profound economic, and I would say energy security issue. Uh, if you think back six or seven weeks to the uh, dispute between Russia and Ukraine, Bulgaria and other parts of U Europe were left without gas for two weeks, as it happens in one of the coldest winters uh, for many years. That means that energy security is absolutely critical to any notion of solidarity that exists across the European uh, Union. In the context of fighting the recession and preparing for sustainable recovery, I think the EU has got a really important underestimated role to play. As we face rising unemployment, investment in new energy infrastructure, from energy storage to interconnectors to efficient homes, renewable power and carbon capture and storage, could be a major source of new jobs. The EU emissions trading scheme and EU regulation can be used to push forward new technologies open and transparent energy markets need to be rapidly taken forward to ensure more solidarity between member states and to ensure that there's effective competition that will benefit consumers. And this is particularly interesting for Britain, which is going from being a net exporter to being a net importer of energy over the next uh, 15 years. And finally, the EU budget needs to be aligned with today's problems of energy and climate security rather than the post-war problem of food security. The third area is closer to, my, uh, to, the, to the heart of foreign policy discussions. Uh, today I was meeting with Benita Ferraro-Valdma, the EU Commissioner responsible for neighbourhood uh, policy. Usually we think about our neighbours in terms of their prospects for membership. And that's important for the, uh, for the Balkans, for Turkey, for Ukraine. We have to keep open the prospect, however distant in some cases, of European community uh, membership. But I just want to say a word about how we deal with our partners who are, not, who are either not members or are uh, not seeking to become uh, members. Think first of all south and then think uh, east. Uh, the uh, Union of the Mediterranean was launched last June in uh, Paris and I actually think it could be a rather useful uh, mechanism. If it can avoid uh, bureaucracy, it could actually address very substantive issues of climate change, of energy security, also actually of migration, illegal migration particularly, uh, between Europe and North Africa. Because the Maghreb, the Middle East, uh, those are profoundly important uh, areas for those issues. If we're serious about diversifying our energy sources, it means examining how we can harness the solar power of North Africa. If we're serious about conflict on our borders, we've got to be serious about what's happening to our uh, south as well as to our east. On the eastern uh, side, in May, the highlight, in some ways the highlight of the Czech presidency, will be the launch of the eastern uh, partnership. I think, this is, I think this is important because it's a focus on countries who want to learn and engage, learn from and engage with us. Uh, but it's also important for our own uh, futures. I think there will be more EU projects, there will be refocused funding. But 
I think the prize is actually a very big one. If Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan actually cooperate together on energy, forge common standards on environmental protection, and dismantle their own barriers to promote free trade, it's going to be a big boost to our own stability and prosperity. Let me just finish up on the following uh, note. Uh, the, the economic crisis has unleashed some important forces of, you can see this around the world, of, of what you might call economic nationalism. It's also unleashed a profound process of internationalism. And you see that in the attention that the G20 is now getting the G20 summit coming in London uh, on the 2nd uh, of April. Uh, the debate hasn't yet taken on uh, a political hue within the European Union, but I think it will. Because I think that the economic crisis is a test not just a policy test, but it's a political test for Eurosceptics and for Europhiles uh, in uh, Britain. Uh, to Eurosceptics, to people who feared, quote-unquote, too much Europe, who argued that the Euro European Union should be a single market or a trading bloc or no more, I would have a simple message. Instead of beating up on the straw man of a federal state, help Europe defend itself against the real threats that it faces. For example, the fragmentation of the single market, which would have a devastating effect on the British economy. Today, the best defense against encroaching protectionism is an effective European Commission. Because you cannot be in favor of the single market, but against the very institutions that preserve the rules of the game on which we all depend. That is a fundamental contradiction at the heart of a Eurosceptic position that says it wants the benefits of the single market, but thinks that the European Commission is too powerful. Over the next year, we need to defend the political institutions in Europe if we want to maintain our economic freedoms. We will need to be fleet of foot, adapting and innovating in order to deal with unprecedented and rapidly changing risks. Because the scale of the economic crisis has forced politicians across the political spectrum to rethink their view of the role of the state in stabilizing markets. It, needs to, it requires us to think about how Europe fits into that context. There are also, however, lessons for Europhiles. The correct decision not to join the Euro when the five tests were applied has not left Britain at the margins of Europe. The so-called British agenda, but in fact it's an agenda of progressive forces around Europe, of which Franz Timmerman is a leading uh, example, I would say. The progressive agenda of social and economic reform under the Lisbon strategy, of budget reform, of enlargement, are not means of diluting the European project, they are means of strengthening it and have been, se and have been seen as such and developed strength uh, as a result. Let me just finish on the following point. The report talks about a global age, but the global age is no longer a given. Like the last age of globalization, which unraveled on the streets of Sarajevo at the beginning of the last century, today's global age is fragile. It's a fragility born of the fact that while our economy has gone global, our politics are still primarily national. The sense of powerlessness that breeds can either force us to scale back our economic life, what the Prime Minister calls de-globalization, and thereby embrace protectionism and nationalism, or it can inspire us to scale up our political institutions at regional as well as global level to match the continental and global reach of our economies. The EU, for all of its faults, which as I say pro-Europeans should be clear about, is the best way of bridging the gap between a globally interdependent economy and strong national political identities which we should continue to celebrate.
that is the case we have to make to our citizens over the next year. Thank you very much indeed. Foreign Secretary, thank you very much for drawing some, drawing some uh, very uh, effective conclusions from uh, all the chaos that we see ar around us and um, putting, putting some um, uh, order on what is going on. And I think your strictures and uh, recommendations were well taken, probably by certainly by the majority of us, I would imagine. Okay, um, usual format which you're all familiar with uh, by now. We move into question-answer mode. I think we can probably take things up to about ten past uh, or quarter past eight at the very latest. I'm not sure what time the Foreign Secretary has to leave us, but uh, maybe a bit before then. Um, but uh, we want to leave as much time for questions as possible. Uh, as always, uh, every chairman will say to you boringly, uh, please, uh, if you volunteer to ask a question, please, please, I beseech you, keep it short, keep it sweet. Uh, say who you are, uh, what your calling is, what walk of life, what your institution is, and if you could just kindly wait for the microphone, the handheld microphone to be uh, passed to you, that would be great. I propose to just bundle in questions, bundle questions in, in threes, uh, and just ask uh, those panelists who feel inclined to answer to come in uh, as, they, as they see fit. Um, okay, who would like to kick off? Um, a gentleman who has a advantage of sitting almost in the front row, right dead centre has caught my eye. Um, yes, please. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I have a question which could be summed as the following to the panel as a whole. Migration from Africa, Middle East and Asia has, a, has had creative uh, influence upon, uh, positive influences upon the e EU and also security challenges as well. And I would like to find out what's the view in relation to migrants from these sorts of countries having an impact upon the European framework of things. I've actually drafted a, a strategy paper on this, and I just wanted your viewpoints on that, if it's possible. Thank you. And, uh, Thank you. Um, okay, next question. Uh, take the gentleman over there, then I'll move upstairs. Gentleman just in the shirt sleeves. Yeah. I want to know, is the UK's position on the euro still the way Tony Blair said it a few years ago, namely, and I think I'm quoting here, um, in principle we are for, in practice the economics have to be right. And if that's the case, is the economics at the moment con converging towards being right or diverging? Splendid, thank you. Pithily put. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, I'd like to go up, um, up, upstairs. Um, sorry. Yes. Gentlemen over there, you seem to be favouring gentlemen for no apparent reason at the moment, but um, more forward in putting up. Yes, please. Hi, it's Michael McGough. If um, Ireland vote no, will that make the, um, the EU unfit for purpose? If Ireland votes no, will that make the EU unfit for purpose, for those who didn't hear? Three excellent questions. Um, who would like to um, kick off? <laughs> <laughs> As we'll get to this side. Leave the politicians to laugh to us. I'm going to just tackle the euro and, uh, and, and the Lisbon, and the Lisbon uh, Treaty. Um, I mean, I, I regret the fact that, uh, that we have a, a government whose policy is prepare and decide, but we've decided not to go in and we've stopped preparing, which effectively means that the government's policy on the euro is identical in practice to that of the opposition. 
Now, be that as it may, the reality is that we're not going to do this, uh, as always in Britain, uh, unless and until the pressures, the economic pressures on us uh, push in that direction. And it will then happen when it does happen uh, as a result of popular demand. I would actually like to see us have a policy because I don't think that in the long term, and maybe actually the rather shorter uh, long term, given what's happening, that Britain can play the kind of role the Foreign Secretary describes unless we are part of, uh, uh, of the Eurozone. But we may, who knows, we may, uh, I'm not suggesting that uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, David Cameron will necessarily have his Nixon and China moment, uh, but, uh, but who knows. As regards the Lisbon Treaty, if the Irish vote no and the Lisbon Treaty is dead, we will certainly lose some important things, not least the, the intensified cooperation in the fight against terrorism and international crime, which I think is the most important part uh, of, the, um, uh, of the Lisbon uh, Treaty. And some of those things, if we want to be effective, we will be obliged to, uh, to come back to. But the European Union itself, uh, uh, the other issues that we, that we face, which David Miliband has described, will be there, and we still have to tackle them regardless of Lisbon. Thank you. Okay, now, not being British, I suppose I'm not entitled to answer the question of the UK and the Euro. The rest of us have strong views on the Euro, and we are glad we have it. Uh, <laughs> now, as regards Ireland and the Lisbon Treaty, treaties, of course, provide frameworks within which policies can be negotiated. A treaty is no more than a framework, and I'm convinced with all its disadvantages, the Lisbon Treaty provides a better framework than the one we have at the present moment. If the Irish decide to vote against it, then we are certainly going to go through a difficult patch for a while, but my guess is that if the Lisbon Treaty fails, we are going to see much more of what we call in the jargon flexible or differentiated integration within the EU of 27, and less enlargement. Could I take this topical question on migration, because that's probably um, one that, that affects all of us, especially in the Netherlands, because there is um, a fear of migration in my country, especially having to do with, with where we went wrong on integration of new, new minorities. And I, I believe that if you look at Europe's future and the demographics of the issue, uh, we will need migration uh, in different forms than we were used to in the past. I think... We see this already in Dutch society, increasing numbers of people from other parts of the world living part-time in the Netherlands or living in two societies at the same time and being perfectly happy with uh, uh, this, this arrangement. Now, we can only get enough support in our societies for such arrangements if um, the issue of asylum is dealt with in a correct way. Uh, that is to provide protection at a European level of our borders. But no matter how high you make the fence at the European borders, if you don't provide development for the regions where people flee from, it will all fail. So having said that we need a migration policy that will allow people to come in and go back and come in again, uh, I have to emphasize that it will all fail if we do not provide development for Africa, for the Mediterranean region, and uh, also for our wider neighborhood, because the pressures from those countries, people coming who have nothing to lose where they live and where they come from and coming towards Europe, will increase the feeling of insecurity of the European population and will prevent us from taking the huge opportunities modern migration policies can offer to our societies. 
Thank you, Prime Minister. Our position on the euro hasn't changed. And we are not currently doing a review of the economic uh, case, but we're interested in uh, Stephen's analysis when we come to do so. Um, <laughs> I think I got that right. The, uh, uh, I think that the, the question about Lisbon, uh, look, Europe will just be less fit for purpose. That's the truth. It will have to find a way to live with Nice, uh, the Nice Treaty. That won't put an end to the uh, constitutional wrangling, it will just open it up because, of course, Nice says that we need a reduction in the number of commissioners but doesn't specify by how many. One of the ironies of the Conservative, by the way, I didn't recognize that reference to Prime Minister Cameron. I didn't recognize that at all. Uh, but the, uh, um, the, uh, one of the ironies of those who oppose the Lisbon Treaty is that they also oppose the Nice Treaty and they oppose the Amsterdam Treaty. And uh, a Europe that would be genuinely unfit for purposes, one that, sorry? Opposed, the Conservatives opposed the Amsterdam Treaty. Yeah, they, you, you well, can go back through the whole debate. Are saying that they would repeat? No, no, at the time, yes. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right, so, so they've been against every, every single uh, treaty. Uh, Amsterdam was the, the, the Blair bicycling moment. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, it's also a very important city in Euro great European yes, city, yes, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, The... Just saved Anglo-Dutch relations there. The, uh, um, but um, I think that uh, one of the undersold benefits of the Lisbon Treaty is that it draws a line on the institutional wrangling that has pervaded the European Union for the last seven years. When people ask, us, ask themselves why has support for the European Union gone down in the last seven years in the Eurobarometer surveys, one reason is that an awful lot of European energy has been focused on the plumbing uh, of our institutional uh, mechanisms. And I think one of the most significant things is that the, the commitment from all the leaders at the time of the uh, final signature of the Lisbon Treaty that there would be uh, no further institutional reform until 2017. And I think that that will allow us to put to the test finally uh, the, the, the issue of getting the European policy, uh, car uh, getting the cart and the horse in the right direction, because in my view, uh, it, the horse is policy and the cart is institutions, not the other way around. And I think we've got ourselves into uh, bad uh, difficulties as a result. I mean, I'm interested in what Peter says. We'll, we'll have to wait and see about what happens in Ireland. But if, 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 if Lisbon doesn't go through, then we have to find a way to live with Nice, and we will, we'll struggle. It will be less effective as a result. Can I add a point on Lisbon from the smaller member state? I think one of the, one of the um, uh, benefits of Lisbon is that we strike a nice balance between big and small member states. We needed to strike a new balance because there's so many small member states now and fewer big member states. And this balance is of, of, of essence for the functioning of the EU. Now, without Lisbon, the temptation for the big member states to find arrangements outside of EU structures and EU treaties will be huge because the challenges are so big they will need to face those challenges with or without us. So from the perspective of a smaller member state, the Lisbon Treaty is the best contribution we can make to EU solidarity between small and big member states. That's great. Good. Thank you. Um, okay. More, more questions. Um, the lady in uh, black and white with a white shirt and black. Yes, please. Uh, sorry, and just to remind you all, please say who you are. Just lady there. Thanks. Um, I work 
organization called Involve, and we're hosting mm -hmm. the UK leg of the European Citizens Consultation. Sorry, could you say it, uh, speak a bit louder and hold it a bit close to your mouth? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I work for an organization called Involve, and we're hosting the UK leg of the European Citizens Consultation. Um, I was wondering, um, when speaking of the le legitimacy problems of the EU, how Europe post-2009 could move um, to include citizens better in the policy-making process, and this may help bridge that gap. Very good. Thank you. Good question. You're back up, upstairs uh, now. Um, the, there's a gentleman right at the very, very back. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Uh, I'm an MSc uh, master student at LSC. And my question is that in the coming global age, uh, we'll see the rise of new larger powers such as China, India, uh, Russia. And I was just wondering, um, how do you see the EU's relationship with them? Uh, more cooperation or competition? Very good, thank you. Yes, and uh, <laughs> um, I, I hope to do most of the people, who, unless a forest of arms suddenly appear in the next few minutes, I hope to get round most of the people who have caught my eye and whom sometimes I'm pretending not to have seen. Gentlemen there, yeah. Simon, will come to you. Uh, Keith Raffin, doesn't the current financial crisis show that we can't have our cake and eat it, that we can't have strong nation states and an effective European Union? Aren't the current increasing strains within the EU due to national retrenchment the leaders talking anti-protectionist but acting nationalistic, encouraging, pressing their banks to lend domestically, not cross-border, bailing out their car industries, and in the case of the UK government, encouraging the depreciation of the currency. And surely what we also need is a transfer of resources, not just from the richer to the poorer within the Eurozone, but from the richer countries to the Eastern European countries outside the Eurozone. Otherwise, we'll have an opening, a reopening of the European divide. Searching questions there. Thank you. Three very good sets of questions. Okay, who'd like to start off? Perhaps we'll start at this end of the table again. Back with the politicians. I don't know about um, the European Citizens Consultation, I'm, I'm afraid. So Stephen does, does he? Well, I'm taking part in it, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's clearly, a, it's clearly a mass movement digging but, uh, into the heart I'm, uh, of. I'm, simply, I'm, simply I'm glad it's aiming at youth I'm as well. I'm simply a kind of technical yeah. gopher to tell them when they get their uh, understanding of the European nitty gritty wrong. But it's, uh, the idea is to bring together a large number of citizens and actually have them debate the kind of issues they would like the European Union to address and how they might be addressed. And what was your question about it? <laughs> <laughs> is this a good thing? <laughs> Good. Well, look, I mean, uh, anything which tries to bridge the gap between uh, political institutions and the people they represent must be a, a, a good thing. And if you can genuinely do it on a mass uh, scale, I think that that's, that, that, you know, that's obviously something we should try and learn from. Every political party in, in Europe, I think, is struggling with how you have mass political engagement and uh, mobilization. But the reason I was late tonight is, uh, by way of contrast, I've just come from the Department for International Development International Conference um, or annual conference with international speakers, they can mobilize large numbers of people pretty quickly around development issues. Some of them are short-term crises, others are longer-term issues. Now, I think that, uh, for me, the lesson is you've got, to, you, you've got to address the policy issues rather than the institutions. So if you ask people, can you address economic risk, uh, climate change, migration on a national level, they say no. And uh, 
I think that's the way you'd engage. I do want to just address the question about um, China and uh, Russia and India because I think, it, I think it's really important. The, one of the key themes of the Obama administration that's come through over the last uh, eight weeks, and I talked to Hillary Clinton about this last week in uh, Brussels, is, and I think there's a real lesson for us here, they see bilateral and multilateral relationships as complementary. And as we seek to develop bilateral relations with Russia and uh, China and uh, India, we've also got to recognize that the EU is a huge asset in our relations with those uh, countries. It's also a huge asset in our relationship with the United States. The one thing that would threaten the special relationship between Britain and the United States is if we were on the margins of Europe. Because actually, the Americans want us to be influential players in the European Union and, and serious and committed players in the European Union. But if we're going to deal with Russia and China and India, we're going to have to get our act together. At the moment, I think I'm right in saying, uh, Pre Prime Minister Putin has attended 14 EU-Russia summits. There's been a different European leader leading the European delegation to each one of those summits with a different agenda being put by that European leader. That's what it means to have a rotating presidency of the European Union. And so uh, there is a real uh, issue here about how Europe gains respect in the world. And one way it gains respect is to get its act uh, together. You could say the same thing about our energy strategy. The de failure to develop a common en energy strategy has meant we haven't been a good customer of the Russians. Actually, each country has been picked off one by uh, one. So if we're going to forge the sort of relationship that we need, EU-Russia, EU-China, uh, EU-US, we've really got to get our own institutional and policy uh, structures sorted out. Yeah, thank you. Yes. On, on the third question, which is a very topical question also in, in my country, um, I, I strongly believe that we need to build Europe on the basis of nation states. I don't believe in the contradiction between European integration on the one hand and the nation states on the other hand. Um, secondly, I, I don't see, I know that we, we run these risks, and David spoke about this, of, of, of taking uh, protectionist measures, etc., etc. But until now, even in this crisis, the internal market is pretty strong. Uh, we haven't really seen attacks on the internal market. We've seen, for instance, plans by the French president on the, on the, on the automotive industry. But he immediately changed them when he saw that this was going to affect his economy um, when, he, when they would be in contradiction with the rules of the internal market. So I'm not all that pessimistic about the strength of the internal market. It is too strong. It will get some blows, I'm sure. But it is too strong to really be seriously affected by, by this crisis. It will help us overcome the crisis. I'm convinced of that. But we cannot build Europe at the expense of the nation state because that is where people's attention is addressed to when they address political subjects and when they want things to be solved. And don't forget that the tools in our toolbox to address the economic crisis to a large extent are national tools. And this is a reality of today. So when we act as nations, our responsibility towards our citizens is to act conjointly with other nations, starting in Europe, not to do something that will hurt uh, our neighbor. Do something jointly. But we don't need the commission to be the sole instrument for that. Those meetings we've had at the highest level of leaders of Europe talking together and, 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 and agreeing on the general outlines of the policy, that's what we need to do today. At, in the long run, we will have to change the toolbox 
and create more international tools, changing the nature of the IMF as our, our utmost priority, and we fully share the view of the British government on this. But the world as it is today simply is the fact that we have national tools that we need to use in the same way internationally, and that is our biggest um, uh, duty right now as politicians on a national level. How to bridge the legitimacy gap, I suppose, is not easy. At the very least, I would think that less scapegoating of European institutions by national politicians would help. Even better, more willingness by politicians to face populist Europe bashing face straight on would help even more. And for some of us, although I know this is more controversial, more politics, in other words, more fights and faces over things European might help to bridge the gap. But I know this is a controversial proposal. Thank you. There's a, there's a real paradox uh, here, I think, which a distinguished Italian academic has drawn attention to, and that is that most of us make our judgments about the European Union, we make big picture judgments, but on the basis of the rather small things that irritate us or please us about uh, the European Union. At the same time, in terms of the legislation, national parliaments have a relatively small role, the European Parliament has a very big role, and at the same time, rather paradoxically, when it comes to the very big picture uh, stuff, the European Parliament, which is, the, if you like, part of a rather federal structure, has very little say, very little say on treaty change, where national parliaments have uh, a huge say. Now, the only way to change that fundamentally would be if we move towards a federal model, which uh, uh, we're not going to do. So I think we're condemned, as it were, to tinkering at the, at the margins. But part of that is actually to enhance the role of national parliaments, which the Lisbon Treaty uh, would do. And part of it, I think, comes back to what the Foreign Secretary was saying, that actually we are seen to do the things that people want us to do in terms of delivering results. I'm very, very struck some years ago when there was a French lorry blockade at, uh, at Calais, and a lorry driver, a British lorry driver, held up at Calais saying, what are the European Commission doing about it? In other words, if you have a real issue which Europe is seen to address, then you can get support for it. Just on the issue of um, Russia, uh, China, and India, um, it seems to me that one of the interesting things is that we have, we have a kind of classic foreign policy bit uh, of the European Union, but that actually the, the biggest key to these uh, relationships uh, is the handling of the, of the, uh, of the economy, uh, energy, and, uh, and climate change, and to start to get a position on those things which we can then take to our relationship does actually require us to use the traditional community methods to find agreement uh, among the member states. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, we'll take another round of uh, questions. Um, I will deliver on my, um, my pledge to my colleague, Simon Hicks. We have the European elections, of course, this year, which uh, none of the panellists have yet mentioned. Um, and I wanted to ask the panellists um, what they thought about the, whether they would be in favour of um, rival candidates for the Commission um, before these elections so we could actually debate what the Commission should be doing for the next five years and what, whether or not our which of these candidates are our political leaders and our governments are going to be backing and why um, as a vehicle for uh, giving the, the Commission more sort of political legitimacy but also as a vehicle for connecting the EU institutions better to the citizens and the voters in these elections in June. Thank you, Simon. Okay, uh, I'd like to look upstairs again for um, any, any questions like that. Um, there's a gentleman with his hand up. Yeah, straight ahead. Yeah. 
Hi, Jonathan Agar. Um, I was wondering, kind of given a lot of people have been talking about the climate change, how important it is in terms of the future of the EU and showing its relevance to its citizens, I was wondering if there's any comment about the presence of the uh, Czech president at the conference in New York today, in um, which he denied the actual existence of climate change. <laughs> Did he say the world was flat too? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, and uh, Ch Charles Grant, back. Yes. Charles Grant from the CER. Uh, given the Foreign Secretary's interest in climate change, I wanted to ask him a question about the emissions trading scheme, which he mentioned in his speech. It is, of course, a great idea. It should be a source of European soft power that we've invented this emissions trading scheme. But the price of carbon in the scheme has collapsed by 70% in the last six months. It's not really working. Uh, this is giving no signals to businesses to uh, invest in energy efficient technology. It could weaken our, our position in the Copenhagen Conference at the end of the year. So would he ask the Commission or suggest to the Commission that it tries to rejig the scheme to put a floor under the price of carbon? Because unless you can try and keep the price of carbon up, the scheme will not work in reducing carbon emissions. Any takers for any of these questions? I'd be grateful. Um, I, I'm not sure that we want the Commission to have political legitimacy because you've got a Parliament which many people think should try to see greater political legitimacy, and you've obviously got national member states. I think turning the Commission into a political, a uh, third political actor, I think is pretty tricky. Um, I'll let um, Franz give a non-diplomatic answer to the question of the Czech President's comments on uh, climate change. Um, on Charles's point, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm, I may be I'm sort of a couple of years out of date on this now, but I think I'm right in saying that when we made our submission to the um, EU, to the Commission uh, consultation on the future of the ETS 2012 to 2016, there was some reference to exploring the idea that you Described. Presumably, the carbon price, which is now 11 or 12 euros a ton, I mean, relative to the oil price, it's, it was 27, 28 euros a ton when the oil price was $147 a barrel. So you can do, you can do the maths in your head. But the, uh, the, the relative price of uh, carbon compared to, to oil, I think, uh, hasn't fallen in, in anything like the uh, way that you suggest. Um, although I, I, I think that the idea of a floor is something that's been that's been mooted and has been sort of given a has been sort of included as, as worth debating. I think can I just pick up um, what Stephen said about energy being absolutely critical to um, uh, our relations with Russia and, uh, and elsewhere. I mean it's also vital on the whole uh, Iran sanctions question uh, as well because um, energy policy sort of went out of fashion in this country in uh, the 80s, North Sea Oil, uh, etc. I think it's been out of fashion and at a European level as well for quite a long time. It's one of the most underdeveloped areas in terms of the debate between uh, about where competence should reside. The idea of a common energy policy was launched, I think, by Tony Blair at the European Parliament in June um, 2005, uh, and or maybe September 2005. And I think that, it, that the more you look at it, the more uh, the, the pipelines that were laid in the post-war period are doing an awful lot to decide geopolitics in Europe now. And the decisions that we take about interconnectors, about some quite technical issues, as well as about diversification and nuclear, which is uh, obviously important, 
are really very, very important to our relative strength in, uh, with neighbors like Russia. And uh, I think you're absolutely right to signal its importance as an economic uh, issue. Right, so I need to talk about the Czech president then. Um, <laughs> Uh, I must say, I, I didn't like the way the European Parliament treated him last week. I think that was very silly. He should have been heard, and they should have had a debate with him on substance and not just declare him out of order, because, because uh, uh, declare him non-existent, because they didn't like what he was saying. I think that's silly. I think, I think he, he, he deserves uh, to be answered. Um, uh, so um, I, didn't, I didn't understand what the European Parliament did then. As far as his um, uh, declarations on, on climate change are concerned, I've, I've heard that before. Uh, needless to say that the scientific evidence is overwhelming. Um, so uh, there's not much point in, in arguing with somebody who, who maintains that the earth is flat. Um, uh, but I don't know much about the Czech constitution, but I do know that he has very, very limited powers indeed, so I'm not that concerned. Johnny Good. Right. Okay. Stephen? I, I, only, know, I only know one uh, other uh, European politician who I think would agree with Vaclav Klaus, and that's uh, former British Chancellor Nigel Lawson, so perhaps they should uh, get together. Um, I'm, being a weak-minded person, I was very taken with the argument in Simon Hicks's uh, book until I read Annan Menon's book. And Annan Menon's argument is, and it's rather David Miliband's argument, is that the last thing you want to do is politicize your regulator. And I think, we are, I, think this, I think this comes back to this dilemma we face between moving in a democratic direction, which means a more federal direction on the one hand, and actually being compelled to live with the kind of slightly hybrid relationship we, uh, we have. I certainly think you, you do not want a situation in which the president of the, uh, of the commission is motivated in the actions which he or she is taking in terms of bringing forward legislation uh, or, it's, uh, or actually monitoring the way it's implemented by a political agenda or is too subject to a political agenda uh, within the European Parliament. Now, fortunately, you very rarely get an overall majority for one party uh, in the European Parliament, so that in itself would ensure some, uh, uh, some, some balance. So, well, I think, I think I go with, with Simon Hicks. I don't think this is uh, an absolutely um, problem-free answer. Uh, I mean, those of us who take seriously the question of the legitimacy of European institutions, legitimacy which is in turn related to the ability to deliver, should be seriously concerned about what is going to happen in the next European Parliament elections. I think there is a very high risk of embarrassingly low turnouts in many of our member countries and also a high probability of a large number of eccentrics or weirdos being elected to the European <laughs> Parliament because of low turnouts. And that would do an enormous amount of harm, not only to the European Parliament, but to the European Union as a whole. So we should think about it. Good, thank you. Um, it's coming up to 8 o'clock, so we're going to take just two, uh, just two questions this time. Um, and I'm going to take one from upstairs and one from downstairs. Very being few sort of a, but very few ladies. This lady has actually has been had her hand up for quite a while. Please. Yeah. Hello, my name is Jan Wyatt. I'm a journalism lecturer at the University of Westminster, and we're in an exchange program with Moscow State University, so we can feel the chill um, in relationships with Russia. And uh, something the Foreign Secretary said about energy policy really worried me. 
did I understand correctly that you are suggesting that Moldova and Azerbaijan and all the other um, former Soviet uh, states neighboring Russia should be ganging up and joining with us in our, our common energy policy? And, and would the common energy policy be perhaps something like the common agricultural policy? <laughs> which Nothing should be like the common agricultural policy. <laughs> Which wasn't uh, an unqualified success. So I'd just like to hear more about that, really. Okay, thank you. And one, from, and one more from upstairs. Yes, gentlemen, right at the back. Hi, I'm a student at LSE as well. Um, I was just wondering, given that most countries uh, in Europe seem to be quite favourable to negotiating their energy policy It's certainly not a question of ganging up, uh, because I think that um, what bedevils the space between the current borders of the European Union and Russia is this idea uh, that it's a zero-sum game, their relations with Europe and their relations with Russia. I mean, uh, when I was in Ukraine in August, I went out of my way to say that, for, for obvious reasons, Ukraine will always be a neighbour of Russia, but and it shouldn't be seeking to uh, um, to cut itself off from. Russia. What it should be seeking to do is develop partnerships with the European Union that strengthen its own capacity to have a proper relationship with Russia. And I can't remember who it was who said that, that uh, um, Russia's, uh, that, 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 that Ukraine uh, always ends up as a vassal of uh, Russia or is at least seen as such. And I think that it's important for those countries that through the mechanisms like the Eastern Partnership, we build up their own capacity to make their own choices about their relationships, which are should be genuine partnerships, not subservient relationships. And I think that we want to have a good relationship with them uh, for our own uh, reasons, not to force them to move against Russia, but actually to balance out the set of relationships that exist in Eastern Europe. And uh, I, I don't see that as an anti-Russian move at all. A common energy policy in which Europe becomes a better customer of the uh, Russians, I think actually is in long-term Russian interest as well as in uh, ours. Does it mean it's the CAP? No, it doesn't. And I think this goes to the point that was raised at the back. I don't think we're really talking about a world where there's a single negotiation between a European energy czar and, a, uh, and Gazprom. What I think we are uh, talking about is European decisions that are European and national that strengthen uh, some important forces. One, of energy independence. Two, of diversification. Three, of uh, low carbon. Four, of solidarity between European and this is why this interconnectors point, which sounds like an incredibly technical uh, point, and probably is incredibly technical, but it's actually very, very important. The extent to which gas pipelines and the connections between them allow European countries to support each other if they come under pressure is very, very uh, obvious, really. And it's something that's been badly neglected on the assumption that there'll never be any interruption to gas supplies into, uh, into Europe. I'd be very surprised if there was any interruption of gas supplies to Western Europe. I see no evidence of... Uh, of that. But vulnerable countries in Eastern Europe have had their gas supplies interrupted. And I think part of the idea of solidarity has got to be that we try to strengthen our own uh, mechanisms to, to, to protect them. And uh, as I say, I don't think that's an anti-Russian move at all. I think it's just about uh, trying to recognize that there, uh, there's a new uh, political geography in Eastern Europe. And it's important for Russia to come to terms with that. And the more you hear discussion of uh, spheres of influence, the more you feel we've got a job to do to try and push back against it. I think Europe needs to take a long, hard look at its relationship with Russia because we've made so many mistakes in the last 20 years 
I believe we were so afraid of instability in Russia that we were not critical enough of developments in Russian society, which led to the Russian population thinking that the fallacy that they were told was democracy was actually democracy. And the fallacy they were told was market economy was actually market economy, which it wasn't. Um, so so uh, by not being critical enough of developments in Russia, we actually um, um, contributed to the feeling of the Russian population that democracy is not for them or something that doesn't work and, and market economy is a problem because it helps thugs and not real people. Um, I think the, the fundamental mistake we've always made is to be um, hard in rhetoric and soft in content, which is exactly the wrong way around to deal with Russia. In dealing, I've lived in Russia three and a half years. In dealing with Russia, you have to be very um, correct in the way you address people. And I think this is right. They deserve to be addressed correctly as a, as a great nation. But you have to be rock hard on content. And we're not. We've always given in. And, and if we want to have an effective Russia policy, which is also aimed at creating um, uh, a space in Europe of stability between Russia and, and the rest of Europe, we need to change that uh, starting point of our policy. We need to be correct in the form, but very tough in content. Uh, as I said in my introduction, I think that energy is an excellent example of the wide gap between declared ambition and delivery. Now, if we want to have a common energy policy, we think we should perhaps try to answer two questions. First is, are we prepared to allow the Commission to negotiate on, the behalf, on behalf of 27 countries? And number two question, are we prepared to do away with the unanimity rule? I think there's an interesting situation that 40% of Gazprom's ex gas exports to the European Union go to Germany uh, and Italy. At the same time, you've got uh, six uh, countries in Eastern and Central Europe, members of the European Union, who are dependent to 80% or more uh, for their gas uh, on, uh, on Russia. Uh, so they are totally dependent, but at the same time, in terms of Russia's interest, they represent a very small uh, market. Now, I do think if we get, and I think we will get, the genuine interconnection gas and electricity, that will self-evidently reduce the, the extent to which those countries can be held to ransom by Russia, because it may be Germany that does the deal, but there will be a grid and they can get the, uh, uh, the gas. Uh, nonetheless, through the, inter through the interconnector. Whether that's sufficient uh, is, uh, has always been my question and the question we asked in the Chatham House report that I mentioned a little bit earlier. And I think in order to actually guarantee uh, that we re reduce our dependence, we may and, and probably should move towards a situation in which the European Commission, on the basis of a mandate agreed by all the member states, does negotiate on our behalf. But I agree with your point. There are a number of European countries, Germany and Italy being the most prominent, who have such a vested interest in their own uh, relationship, uh, made in their own interest rather than Europe's interest, that it will be, be hard-pressed to get them to change. This is one of those rare and welcome occasions uh, where the United Kingdom is one of the most European of all the member states. Well, I hope we can all agree that we've had a, a very uh, productive and... Uh, interesting discussion. It's very frustrating to have to end it so, uh, so early uh, when there are so we could happily go on for a long time, um, uh, not least into some of the more kind of the existential challenges which the current crisis is throwing up, which uh, we didn't deal with all that much, and so some of the questions which Keith, Keith Raffin put, for example, would have been nice to get into. But anyway, uh, we've had a very good discussion. Um, 
many, many thanks to Policy Network and to Eliamet for their huge role in making uh, both this evening possible. Um, and I would commend um, uh, an ongoing interest in this project uh, to you all, and um, by various means to do your best to keep abreast um, of the discussion. Uh, the idea, as I said at the beginning, is to submit uh, end of April, early May, uh, a set of proposals and ideas to member state governments and the European Commission uh, and the European Parliament. Above all, I'd like to thank very much uh, our panelists this evening. I think they've done us proud, um, so I hope you will show your appreciation uh, to them. Um, and I would just ask you, when you have finished showing your appreciation, if you could please just stay in your seats until uh, the panellists have left the platform. That would be very helpful indeed. So thank you to all. Thank you.